Good morning to you. It's good to see you guys. Before we get started, you know, this uh, new young couple in the back, which you may wonder if they were in college or not, I just want to let you know that they are close friends of mine. I have known them, or I should say they have known me since I was a very young lad, I think three years old. And uh, they were at the church where my dad pastored many, many years ago. And in fact, their names are Red and Doris Kuna. Doris was um, our wedding coordinator, my wife and I. I think, I believe you also made the cake for our wedding, didn't you? You did not make the cake. I was wrong about that. It's been a while, 20 years. So, um, but they are on this really long road trip right now, seeing family, actually hearing my brother preach and coming here today to hear, hear me preach, but they'll head back to Colorado here shortly, but it's grateful to have them here with us and just wanted to let you know who they were because you were probably wondering, but uh, it's good to have you guys with us. Please open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5. I'm going to read our text and then we will... Look at this uh, glorious chapter together. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. 1 Peter 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, According to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, not yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. It's been a few weeks since we've been in the book of 1 Peter. You remember a month ago that Peter closed by encouraging and exhorting these believers who he was writing to, who were scattered abroad, who were facing persecution. He was exhorting them and and encouraging them to continue to, to do what is right, to continue to walk in holiness, to continue to be righteous in the midst of their persecution. And he says, he ends in verse 19, he says, therefore also all, Those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. And we ended with that last time, those encouraging words. And now, here in chapter 5, Peter transitions to talking to the elders who shepherded these dear people scattered in these various regions. And as I was thinking about this text this week, I came across a number of interesting facts regarding shepherds and shepherding. A few of these facts are probably more familiar to you than others. These facts come from the ancient Hebrew Research Center. First fact would be that the youngest boy was often the shepherd. You remember that even from David back in the Old Testament. Older boys would move on from shepherding to be more involved with the farming. So I obviously scanned my children this week and said that that would be Lawson. I think Lawson would be a great shepherd. But uh, time will tell. I don't have any desire to take on sheep at this point in my life. Their garb, what they wore was a simple 
tunic of cotton that is girded around his body by a leather girdle, very similar to what everybody wore in those days. And then they had an outer garment called an abba, which is often made of camel's hair, much like, remember, John the Baptist in the New Testament. The abba would keep that young boy warm, and it was able to shed the rain because of the material it had. And at night, it was used as a blanket in which he would wrap himself and sleep. Shepherds carry with themselves several things. They carry what's called a shepherd's scrip, which was a leather case of sorts and typically filled by his mother with bread, cheese, dried fruit, olives, the the food of the day. You remember that when David went to face Goliath that he put his five smooth stones in that scrib. They would carry with them a rod. The writer of this article describes it like this. He says it's like a policeman's club, often made of oak wood and has a knob on the end of it. Into this knob, nails are sometimes driven so as to make a better weapon. It's very useful for protection and no shepherd would be without it. No doubt David carried one of these to protect his flock from wild animals. This was also useful for counting and inspecting the sheep. You could kind of move and prod them a little bit to count them, to move them to where you wanted them to go. Then you had the shepherd's staff. This was a, a stick that was five or six feet long and had a crook at the end of it. And it was useful for handling the sheep, and it was also useful for protection. I guess you could kind of swing that thing like a bat and hit those wild animals. Then you had the shepherd's sling. You're familiar with that. This was used for protection from wild animals. One thing that was interesting to me, though, was that it is also used as a guide for the sheep. For it would be used for the sheep that would wander wander, or, or lag behind. The sheep, the shepherd would then sling a stone and it would land near the sheep. And that would encourage the sheep to then keep up with the rest of the flock. It was kind of a motivational thing, like kind of a loud noise that would hit the ground, a little pop that would cause that sheep to move to keep up with the rest of the flock. Obviously, they had to be very good with their aim, right? You wouldn't accidentally want to kill one of the flock. So, oh man, I just hit Sean the sheep, right? And he, he, he's failed to be with us now from here on out, right? You wouldn't want to have that situation happen. wouldn't want to lose Sean. Then you have the shepherd's flute. The author says that this was a dual-piped flute of reed and generally carried by the Arab shepherd. It is true that minor strains of music, which aren't very appealing to ears, would, would come from this flute, but that the heart of the shepherd would be stirred by this and the sheep of the flock would be refreshed by the invigorating music that comes from this simple instrument. And there can be little question that when David used such an instrument when he was with his flock... Um, it would have been in the same way that shepherds have, have used it for centuries as they have in Bethlehem and the surrounding areas. So an interesting instrument. The shepherd also provided for his sheep. He provided food, right? By leading them to green pastures. That was part of the shepherd's job, which were in different territories depending on the time of year. But also when there was no food, when it would dry up as it gets very hot there, they, he would cut down brush and leaves from shrubs and trees and he would chop that into food as grass would no longer be available at certain times. Shepherd would provide water in the sense that 
Often flocks were stationed near a stream of running water, but, but the sheep are apt to be afraid of drinking water that moves quickly. And so he would, provide, he would move them to, to pools of water to provide a quiet place for them to quench their thirst. But when all such watering places dried up in the heat of summer, as again it does there, then wells are used. Usually a large rock is placed over the mouth of the well, and then it must be removed, as Jacob did before the sheep can be watered. We see that in Genesis chapter 29. One other thing that they provided was a, an improvised sheepfold. This was a makeshift, makeshift fence, typically made of thorn bushes to keep sheep together when they were in pastures away from home. So often they would graze in pastures near their house and so they could bring them back into the sheepfold at night and the shepherd could just even sleep in his own home. But when there was no grass or surrounding food, he would lead them to other pastures and he would then make this makeshift fold to keep them together. And as I thought about those things and processed that, all of these things to me point to the care and the concern that the shepherd had for tending and leading his flock. It was a full-time job that this guy had. It required commitment. It required endurance. It required patience. And, and it required precision, even as you think about that situation with the sling. He had to avoid and stay focused on, avoid distraction and stay focused on the task. And, and he did this, why? Because he loved those sheep. They were his responsibility. But he was also responsible to his father who owned the sheep. Right? Typically, it wasn't the father who was out shepherding. It was the youngest son. The father was more involved with the farming with the older boys. But it was still the father's sheep. He owned them. He had purchased them. And so the son was responsible to care for these sheep who belonged to another owner. And such is to be the case for faithful under-shepherds of Jesus Christ in caring for and leading his sheep, the people of God. And in our text this morning, Peter transitions from exhorting and encouraging believers regarding their response to suffering in this life to calling upon the elders of these believers to lead them faithfully amid their suffering. To lead these believers faithfully as they were in the midst of suffering. This text teaches us that faithful under-shepherds are responsible to lead their sheep to be committed to Christ in the midst of suffering. How is it then that elders are to lead as, as faithful under-shepherds? Well, we see this charge to elders communicated through several instructive details, which we will actually take a few weeks to unfold. But I want to draw your attention this morning to this first instructive detail that we find in verse one, and it is this, it is the constraining appeal to faithful under-shepherds. The constraining appeal to faithful under-shepherds. Look again at verse one. Peter says, therefore, I exhort the elders among you. Therefore, we know ties our passage to a previous text, to the previous text. 
And the question is to what exactly Peter is drawing from to now make his appeal to these elders, because there are a couple of different options. He could be saying that since judgment begins with the household of God, for we see that in verse 17 of chapter 4, he says, for it is time for the judgment to begin with the household of God. He could be tying it back to that. So since judgment begins with the household of God, I exhort the elders among you. Possible. However, I believe the second option is better connected to the overall text, which is basically since these folks are in the midst of suffering, I exhort the elders among you to shepherd them effectively through these difficult times. And though that is the direct context, the general principle also is in play here as Peter is going to outline what biblical eldership looks like in the next several verses. I think this is critical for us. We need to understand these things. Biblical eldership is spoken about a lot in this church, and I hope every time that it is, you you are paying attention, you are understanding it, because this is what God has designed. And before he gets to those particular details of what biblical eldership looks like, he begins by appealing, uh, appealing to the faithful leaders in his church. And his constraining appeal is seen, first of all, by the way that he appeals by way of an authoritative exhortation. He appeals by way of, a, of an authoritative exhortation. Uh, the word used for exhort here has the idea of a, of a strong appeal. It means to encourage or, or urge someone in a particular direction. The strong encouragement is manifested in, in the encourager coming alongside the one who's being encouraged and, and helping them and, and modeling it for them. The noun form of this verb used here is paraclete, which you might recognize. Paraclete is a term, the Greek term that is used in the New Testament, several times to refer to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes alongside God's people and helps them in a variety of ways. And there are several texts that indicate that. But he convicts them. He sanctifies them. He helps them in their times of greatest need. He prays for them as we learned about last, or I guess a couple weeks ago at this point when Brad Clausen was here. But the Holy Spirit comes alongside his people and, and he is their helper. That's, that's the noun form of the a verb used here. And that is the sense of the exhortation that, that Peter is giving to fellow elders. He's saying, I'm encouraging you. I'm coming alongside you. And we're going to see why in just a second. But I'm coming alongside you to encourage you to, to then shepherd the flock of God, which he gets to in verse 2. Notice who the appeal is to. He says, I appeal or I exhort the elders among you. The elders among you. In the New Testament, specifically in the context of the church, the term elders refers to the God-ordained leadership of the church as it does here. And there are three terms used for elder interchangeably throughout the New Testament. You have elder and you have bishop and you have 
overseer or, or shepherd. Each one has a slightly different nuance and gives insight to the, to the fullness and, and the importance of the office. So the term bishop speaks to, to guarding the flock, to protecting the flock. The, the term shepherd or overseer speaks to the responsibility to feed the people of God with the word of God. The term elder, which is the term Peter uses here in our text, refers to the spiritual maturity of the man who is given such a critical role. And so even as you think about that very simple overview of those three words, you can see how the elder's responsibility, how, how the, the person of the elder, it is a full responsibility, it is a full job. There are a lot of things involved in his guarding the flock and his feeding the flock and the reality that he has to be a spiritually mature man. Elders are spiritually mature, gifted men who are called to shepherd the flock of God. Their spiritual maturity is measured according to the qualifications set forth in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. And so I want you to turn with me for just a moment to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'm not going to cover these qualifications in detail here because we want to keep to our text, but I, I want you to see them. I want you to hear them. I'm going to make a couple comments about them. Lord willing, beginning in the spring, I think I'm going to move into the book of Titus. And, and when we get into Titus, we will cover these qualifications in greater detail as they appear there in chapter 1. But I want you to see them here in 1 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 1, Paul tells Timothy this, he says, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work that he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil." When you look at these qualifications, we'll kind of unpack this a little bit, but and we'll get back to the first qualification there in chapter 3, verse 1, if any man aspires to the officer of an overseer. We'll talk about that in just a second. But, but when you start to look at these qualifications, the character qualifications, so after the desire that are laid out there in verses 2 through 7, you see that first one that says that an overseer then must be above reproach. Above reproach. That particular phrase, that particular qualification serves as a governing umbrella under which all of the other qualifications come. 
So if a man is above reproach in the eyes of God, then he is going to be the husband of one wife. He is going to be temperate. He is going to be prudent and so on and so forth. To be above reproach is to, for one to be able to make no valid accusation of wrongdoing. No valid accusation of wrongdoing. And so it's just this governing qualification that the man of God must have resounding about his life. It must be evident that there are no accusations that are going to stick. It says that they are going to be the husband of one wife, not necessarily talking about marriage in particular. The idea here is a one-woman man. It's more of the man's moral and sexual purity, his devotion to his wife, his wife alone. He is to be temperate, that is, that he is to be clear-headed. He is to be clear-headed. He is to be able to think. It's not to be a distracted person. He is to be prudent. He needs to know how to order his, his priorities. He is serious about spiritual matters. He's not always a clown. <laughs> There's a seriousness to how he approaches the things of God. There's a seriousness to how he approaches the church of God, the people of God, to shepherding the people. He is to be respectable. That is, that he is to be orderly. His life is to be orderly. God is a God of order. God demands that we are to be people of order. We see that from the very beginning, from the Genesis mandate, that we are to be those types of people. We are to live lives of order. But a man who is going to be an elder needs to be a man who is a particularly orderly person in the way that he manages his life. He is to be hospitable, literally a, a lover of strangers. He is to be an example to the flock and how he helps others, how he invites them into his life, at times into his home. He is to be able to teach. He has to be gifted. There has to be an affirmation there by other elders, other gifted men, who, who say that this particular man is gifted to teach. That is a qualification for an elder. It says that he's not to be addicted to wine. Now that is that he doesn't have the reputation as a drinker. Like when you first think of that particular man, the first few things that come to your mind are not that, yeah, that guy drinks a lot. <laughs> if that is the case, then, then he is not fulfilling that particular qualification. He's not to be pugnacious. He's not to be violent, but gentle. He's not given to blows. He, he doesn't come into these different Dissentious situations that he might encounter as a leader and all of a sudden be ready to, to explode and to be given to some sort of violent reaction. But rather, he is to be gentle. He is to be free from the love of money. And that is that he is, to be, he is not to be covetous. He's not to be covetous. He's, it's not that pastors aren't to have money and use money. That's how we operate. That's how God has provided for us in this time. We don't particularly do a lot of 
bartering these days, right? You know, trading your shoes for a new belt, right? So, so we have to have money to take care of those things. But it's a man who is not given to the love of money. Always thinking about how you can make that next dollar or worse, thinking about ways to manipulate a particular situation to gain a financial advantage. You can't be that type of man. He is to be a man that manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. And then he gives the parentheses there in verse 5, because if a man doesn't know how to manage his house, how is he going to manage the church of God? So he's got to be an effective manager. That's proven by the way that he manages his home. And his children are somewhat under control. (laughs) They are obedient. They are submissive. And so he shows that. He's not to be a new convert. He's not to just be a brand new Christian. Why? So they won't become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. I mean, some of you have gotten saved recently. And, and you get zealous and you get on fire. You can, you can see how simple of a temptation it would be to, to want to just be overwhelming to people with this newfound faith and, and to not be um, under control, to become conceited, to think, oh, I'm in this, for this guy, he's, I'm in this high position now, I just got saved, I'm in this high position, and, and uh, well, look at me, <laughs> look at me. So he can't be a new convert. And then he must have a good reputation with those outside the church. Why? So that he will not fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. You can't have a guy when the surrounding community that you're trying to reach with the gospel. You can't have a guy where the community says, that guy's the pastor? Hmm. Probably won't be visiting that church. Can't have that kind of reputation. So he's got to have a good reputation. A lot of qualifications, but all of these, as I said, fall under that umbrella of being above reproach. If a man is looking carefully at his life and seeking to honor God, he is going to be these things. And the people in the church are going to say, yes, we we, we can't find accusations to throw at this man. But this text in 1 Timothy 3 also lays out the objective call for a man who is to serve in ministry as an elder or a pastor. I, out of all the questions I deal with right now in my life as a pastor, this is probably the biggest one I deal with. I deal with a lot of young guys wondering if they should enter the ministry, and particularly with my role with the seminary, I'm dealing with guys who are coming from out of state, some guys in our church, different guys who are saying, okay, so what is, what is the call? Is it just when I feel really good about something and think this is what I need to do? I really want to go do what that guy is doing. Is that, is that when I should pursue seminary and then pursue a pastorate? Well, what is the call? Is it just subjective? Is it just feelings-based? A lot of people believe the call into ministry is that. Well, 1 Timothy 3 makes it abundantly clear that the call to ministry is an objective call. In other words, God 
calls men out, and he places them in various churches to shepherd his people. And that objective call is seen very clearly in this text. Now, this objective call, follow me here, this objective call, there's, there's four aspects to it. And the first one is the most subjective of the four. And that's found in verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, if a man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. This is where it begins. It does begin in the man of God with a great desire to go and to preach the word and to shepherd the flock. And it can become a burning desire. In fact, Charles Spurgeon said, it's such a desire that it's going to affect you in the way that if you can do anything else with your life, you have a desire to do anything else, go do it. But if it's such a compelling desire to do this, then you can't do anything else. That's how he would describe it. It is a compelling desire. It begins, a man continues to sit under the word of God, continues to be trained, continues to be involved in the church, continues to serve, but the desire is not going away. Every time he sees somebody preaching, he's like, I got to do this. I remember that desire started for me in high school. As I just started hearing guys preach, and I'm like, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to do. That's what I want to do. And, and in God's providence, I didn't really understand this objective call until later on in my life, but in God's providence, he did lead me through a string of things, affirming things in my life to get me to the place where I'm at. But, but for me, this was the driving factor. <laughs> this is what I want to do. I want to go preach. And so it is this desire, and, and it is this desire to shepherd, it is this desire to care for people, and it's such a desire that, this, that it's, it's an outward pursuing of the office because of this inward passion. And so, so this desire leads a man to, to pursue the office. So it's not just this desire that he alone knows about and he keeps to himself, but he begins asking questions. He begins pursuing, what does it look like for me to pursue being an elder? And that's the kind of desire it is. And it's a desire for the work. Right? It's not a desire for a title. It's not the desire for a position. It's not the desire for the office in that sense. It is a desire for the work, for the work and the work that's laid out there in managing the church of God and preaching and teaching and all the things that Peter's going to talk to us about in chapter 5. It's a desire for the work. That's the first aspect of this objective call. It's that desire. The second is the, qual is the man is qualified in his character. And you see that there in verses 2 through 8 and all those qualifications that are laid out. And so a man is, is evaluated to whether or not he meets those qualifications. And it's not talking about perfection here, but it's talking about the direction of a man's life. There are going to be days in elders' lives where they fail at these particular qualifications in one way or the other. Why? Because we're not perfect people. Those who are called to, to pastor are not perfect individuals. But the direction of their life is heading in the direction of these qualifications. And they need to be taken seriously. And they need to be something that he considers regularly and he thinks about and he ponders. 
And so then that, that character quality is evaluated in the life of that man. That's very objective. As other leaders in the church evaluate that. Third aspect of the objective call is that he is gifted to teach. And you see that there at the end of verse 2. He says that the man is able to teach. This is the primary distinction between deacons and elders is that elders have to be gifted to teach because he's going to go in verse 8 in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy and he's going to talk about the character of deacons and it matches up hand and glove with the character of elders but the one thing that's missing is the ability to teach the ability to communicate the truth of the word of God in a way that people hear it they understand it they are compelled by it and then they make application to their lives. So they're gifted to teach. And that's not based on one's own evaluation. You know, and one of the simple pieces of advice I give to young men is just, listen, you want to find out if you're gifted, you got to start finding venues to preach. I... <laughs> Steve Lawson is in the back of my mind right now because when he was talking about this, he, uh, he would talk about how when he got to, when he got to college, when he got to seminary, and he felt this, this unbridled passion to go and to preach the word. He just started finding places to, places to go. And so he had this, he calls it this lectern, right, like a pulpit, this little lectern that would break down. So he'd pop that thing out and build it all up and preach in various places. Whether, you know, whether it was out in a courtyard or it just didn't matter. He would find places to do that. Why? Because he was, he was trying to see if that gift was there. I just think of Steve pulling something out of his car and building it up. It was hilarious to me. But the guy's got to be able to teach and it's evaluated by other gifted leaders. And the fourth the fourth aspect of this objective call is there in verse 4 and 5, right? He, it's the gift being gifted to manage. That's why most men who go into pastoral ministry, most men who go into biblical eldership within the confines of the church are married men. I don't think this particular set of verses disqualifies an unmarried man, a single man from this. I don't believe that. But I do believe that this is the best way to gauge whether or not he can manage his life. You just look at his home. You look at his children. You look, how does this guy function? Is there order? Is there order amidst the chaos? <laughs> because having children can be chaotic. Is there order? And you have to see, if he, can he manage that? Does he take care of them? Do they wear clothes, right? Do they, do they submit? To, do they obey? Do, you know, those are good things. I've known a family. They're a great family, but their kids never wore shoes. And that's just because their kids chose not to wear shoes, but it just freaked me out. Like, how do you wander around? I was preaching at my brother's church a few months ago, and one of those kids, I, I was saying, inevitably, these kids, are, they're going to step on rusty nails out here. My brother lives out in the middle of nowhere in Colorado. I am telling you, nowhere. And there's rusty nails everywhere out there. And so we walk out of the church. We're going to lunch. Run down. Everybody's surrounding this girl on the ground. What happened? Rusty nail right through the foot. I'm like, girl, put on some shoes. Stop stepping on that stuff. And they 
fixed her right up. That's what you do out there in the middle of nowhere. I mean, you just have different levels of medical supplies. These are the kind of men that First Timothy describes, that Paul's describing to Timothy. These are the kind of men that Peter is exhorting in our text. These kinds of men who've answered this objective call upon their lives, qualified men, gifted men. Back in our text in 1 Peter 5, I want you to notice also the fact that, that Peter uses the plural elders and not just elder. Now, this speaks to the reality that God has ordained a plurality of elders to lead the local church. First, in Titus 1.5, Paul says to Titus, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. When this term is used in the New Testament to refer to ministry, it is always in the plural. So whenever you see the term elders in the New Testament, overseers, bishops, and it's referring to ministry, it is in the plural. The church is not to be run by one man, but rather there is to be a plurality of men leading the church. And there are several reasons for this. First of all, God has designed it this way. It's clear in his word. Secondly, it protects the church from the power trips of individuals who might come in and be that one-man band and decide this is how we're going to do things and lead the church in a, a wonky direction. It protects the elders to have a plurality of elders from accusations and, and from pride. But when an elder is accused, if he's there by himself, he's going to have to stand on his own two feet and defend himself. But in a plurality, if an elder is accused and they go through the process of the two or three witnesses, all those kinds of things, he's going to have the backing of the other men to investigate that and to see that through. And it protects that particular elder. It doesn't happen if it's just one man. It protects the, the once for all faith, the sound doctrine that Jude talks about there in Jude 3 from being manipulated, from being thwarted, or from being mishandled. Because if you have an elder who begins to go astray, you have the other gifted, qualified men, spiritually mature men to come alongside and say, listen, buddy, you can't say that. <laughs> you can't say those things. And to... to come alongside him and sometimes to remove him. This one's unique and something I've learned in recent years is that it provides the collective wisdom of a group of ordained qualified men to lead the church through their vision and their decision-making. That collective wisdom of a group of spiritually mature qualified men I can see clearly it is God's method. And I sit in our elder meetings so often just thanking God for the, the collective wisdom that shows forth as, as men discuss all kinds of issues. And there may be big issues that take multiple elder meetings to, to come to an agreement on. But you can be certain that whenever there is an agreement made, that it is the collective wisdom of that entire group. There's not in any way, shape, or form one man running that show. And I have watched that wisdom come forth and, and spew, so to speak, 
from those men. It's an amazing thing, but that collective wisdom that comes is, is a very helpful thing. Well, Peter goes on, and we must go on, to indicate who this plurality of elders he is appealing to is, is to govern. He says, I exhort the elders among you, among you. This implies that each local church that is established is to have its own plurality of elders to rule and to shepherd. The elders of our church do not bear the responsibility to, nor do they have the right to rule any other local church that exists. None of our guys pop into other elder meetings at the local churches here, start giving their opinion, start demanding that they do things a certain way. Elders from other churches don't come to our elders meetings and do that to us. God has given particular men, particular flock to govern to rule, to shepherd. God, according to his kind providence, provides biblically qualified men to lead each local assembly. And each local church functions under the leadership of those elders, and they are responsible to those men. They are not responsible to all of the other elders of other churches. Just because, because a guy's an elder of a particular local church doesn't make him the elder of this church and this church and doesn't have the right to rule in that sense. Now, often these men have to be called out and they have to be trained by the existing leadership, but God does not leave true churches without qualified men. This also means that for a church to be a true New Testament church, that church must have a plurality of elders. Don't miss that. We just watched this with our church plant, right? They served under our leadership, so they had a plurality of elders. Now they are a completely distinct church. We have no more governing authority over them. Why? Because they now have three elders installed. They are their own distinct local church. This is why no parachurch organization like a campus ministry can suffice as a church. There is certainly a place for those ministries, but they need to be under the auspices of a local church where they are accountable to the leadership of that church. Listen, for a ministry to establish itself willy-nilly without any accountability from qualified elders is not biblical. That's a pretty... I think bold statement this day and age <laughs> because there are a lot of parachurch ministries and organizations that are functioning that I don't know about you, but I get tons of emails from, hey, we'll be a part of this, be a part of this, hey, we're doing this. And if you read their doctrinal statements, you think, yeah, 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 you are Christians. But I don't believe, according to the New Testament, that they are functioning biblically. Because they are off on their own. They've established their own agenda, their own leadership, who aren't necessarily qualified men leading in a local church. The church is God's design for this age. And so all of these other parachurch organizations, which a lot of them are very good, need to come under the auspices of those local churches. The term among you in our text also points 
the elders to the priority of their ministry. Due to the vast influence of social media, which I'm growing more and more tired of, there are many men who are pastors of local churches who are missing the mark here. They are spending a vast amount of time attempting to shepherd all of their followers on Twitter instead of shepherding their own churches. Now, don't misunderstand me. Social media is a great outlet to proclaim the truth, to point people to the gospel, to think biblically. It is. Those things happen. It's a good thing. But, but the priority of the called, qualified man of God is to invest his life in leading and shepherding the people that God has entrusted to him as a shepherd in his local assembly. That is the call of under-shepherds. Under-shepherds are not to be thinking about shepherding the world at large and to give that their priority. They are to think about the fact that God has given a people among them. And that is who they are called to shepherd. Because this, that group of people, that local congregation, is who he is accountable for. That's who he is accountable for. He may have 70,000 followers on Twitter. And he may say awesome things. But if that's the priority of his life, and he is missing the marks, the shepherd in his local church, he will stand before God and give an account for missing the mark. I'm going to talk more about this next time when Peter uses this term again in verse 2 where he lays out the responsibilities of the faithful under shepherd. But that'll suffice for now. Men who are elders are established based on the authority of the scripture. This is why Peter's exhortation carries so much weight here. I exhort the elders among you. But not only is Peter his constraining appeal carry with it an authoritative exhortation. Secondly, he also appeals by way of personal example. And I promise we're almost done. Peter now pleads with these local churches who who must lead their flock well in the midst of suffering that they are encountering by appealing to them as one of them. As one of them. Notice the next phrase in verse 1. He says, as your fellow elder." As your fellow elder, Peter is a pastor. And as an apostle, he is more of a pastor to the universal church. That was part of their prerogative that God gave them. But but nonetheless, he is a fellow elder, it says. Therefore, he can identify with, with these men who he is exhorting. He is unified with them. He is one of the plurality, so to speak. He personally felt the responsibilities that they felt as elders because he himself was an elder. He uses his use of first person here in the verse one signifies both authority and his camaraderie with these other men. But notice that he is not only their fellow elder, but he is also a witness to the sufferings of Christ. A witness to the sufferings of Christ. Peter personally witnessed Christ's suffering and he had personally experienced the effects of that suffering that had been passed down to his followers after Jesus ascended to heaven. 
You remember that right off the bat in Acts chapter, well, 2, 3, and 4, right? As the church was established on the day of Pentecost, Peter was preaching a lot in Jerusalem. Thousands of people were being saved and added to the church. It was such an exciting thing that was happening there. But he began to upset those in leadership there. And Peter ended up in prison a time or two. And he suffered on behalf of Christ. And he suffered later on down the road when eventually tradition tells us that he was, he was crucified upside down as a martyr. Peter had witnessed Christ's sufferings. And then Peter had been a testimony to those sufferings as he had been persecuted as Jesus was. Peter was living what he was calling them to live. Think about how much this meant to these men. The one who was, who was calling them to stand firm and, and to lead well as they were encountering, encountering persecution had already in his life encountered great persecution and he had made it through. And not only that, but Peter wasn't always on top of his game, was he? Before Peter became the mouthpiece of the New Testament church early on, Peter is an example to us of a great failure, is he not? As he denied Christ three times on the day that Christ was executed, after telling Jesus, after saying, well, I'm going I'm to go with you, I'm going to die with you, Jesus. And Jesus says, Peter, I'm praying for you, which is fantastic, a sermon all in of itself. I'm praying for you. But before the rooster crows, you're going to me, deny me three times. And he did. And it was devastating. Peter had failed miserably as a disciple and an apostle of Jesus. As he outwardly denied Christ as Christ was being persecuted and being executed to save his own skin. But Peter didn't walk away like Judas, right? He didn't go kill himself in a field. He took some time, he went fishing, and then Jesus called him to the shore for breakfast and he restored him, didn't he? Do you love me, Peter? Yeah. Do you love me, Peter? Yeah. Do you truly love me, Peter? Yeah. If you love me, Peter, go shepherd my sheep. So he restores Peter to ministry. These people knew that. They knew Peter. His fame had spread. There's no doubt. And so as he's telling them these things, and he's telling them, listen, I'm a fellow elder. I'm coming alongside you. Listen, I'm as a witness to the sufferings of Christ. They're saying this is a genuine man who's been there, who's failed, who was restored, and he is now living for the glory of Christ as an effective elder. This gives his apostolic authority credibility. He was a credible elder, and the other elders could trust him. 
Not only could he be trusted, but he was worthy to be imitated at this point. But the text says, as we finish up, that he was also a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed just as they were. Peter and the other elders were on on level ground, the same level ground. He was a Christian who was eagerly awaiting the glory to come when his Lord returns, just as they were. Just like every other Christian, Peter was waiting in great anticipation the return of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, this is incredibly encouraging to those elders. This is incredibly encouraging to these people he's writing to. This is incredibly encouraging to us. Elders are partakers together of the glory to come. And they get to minister together as a plurality and point their people who they are accountable for to that same glorious reality, which is also true for those people, and they get to do this week after week. It's a glorious thing. Peter reminded them, I'm just a partaker of the same glory. I'm waiting for Jesus just as you're waiting for Jesus. We're in this thing together. That's the right use of using that term, by the way. Next time, we're going to look at the second instructive detail, which expounds upon the role of elders as faithful under shepherds. As we close our time this morning, I simply want to encourage you with the reality that The elders here at Countryside are these types of men that we have just talked about. I I feel like I say this every week, but it's something I think about constantly. You are in a very unique place right now. What the Lord is doing in our church is wonderful. God in his providence is using this place in an amazing way, and you in his providence are here and are part of it. And the primary reason is because these men are these kinds of people. They are gifted men of character who are devoted to the flock here. They have responded positively to the exhortation Peter gives that we will impact next time, which is to shepherd the flock of God among you. And so I just encourage you to appreciate these men, to pray for these men, to respect these men, to submit to these men. God has ordained them and placed them in his church here at Countryside to lead his people faithfully. And we can rejoice in that. Let's pray together. Lord, thanks for our time. Thank you just for a few minutes to step back and to evaluate this critical position that you have ordained for men to, to lead your people. Lord, it's a... It's a heavy weight. It's a heavy responsibility to think through. There's a lot of qualifications. There's a lot of things involved. But Father, you are faithful as you continue to build your church across this world to put into those local churches that are established faithful men to lead those people, to love those people, to shepherd those people. The men who Peter is exhorting in our text. Thank you for that. We give you the glory for it, for all of the good that happens. Lord, you are the giver of all good things. You are the one who creates these things, who establishes these things. 
We're so thankful. Thanks for our time together today. Father, we just ask that we will continue to be faithful in our submission to those who you have put into authority. In Christ's name, amen.